So you can begin. But as I was walking in here, I, I decided that um, I'd like to start by talking about two things. Uh, the first one is um, clothes. And the second one is my daughter, Molly. And because uh, two, uh, both the clothes and my daughter, Molly, were... Um, I was reminded that I had talked about them on previous retreats. And, and I think the reason I've talked about them on previous retreats is because uh, both clothes and my daughter Molly have been a very important gurus for me. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I think I'll start with the clothes. Uh, 1984. Vintage IMS, IMS before it was fixed up and had single rooms, or good single rooms. My room was about five feet or six feet by about 12. And uh, my room, it was over in the annex. I don't know what they call the annex now. Is it still called the annex? No, Shanti. So it was over in the annex and I had the, the distinction of having the room where the water pipe, all the water from the roof came down through my room. (laughs) And when it rained, it was uh, deafeningly loud. So you can just add this little detail to the the story because it was a, uh, you can imagine when you're doing a, a meditation period that doesn't just last five days, but it lasts three months. And about two months into the retreat, not only, is, um, not only does our mind become much more luminous and clear, able to reflect reality so much more um, distinctly and, and literally see through the folds of the world, see through the, the kind of deconstruct reality where you see how it all comes together, how everything is conditioned and, and how everything breaks apart and it's continual birth and death. Well, this process of deconstruction of reality goes along with an, another inevitable process in when one does intensive practice, which is, I, I call it, a process of, of psychological regression. The more microscopic and the more powerful the mind gets, also the more innocent and young one feels. So I happen to be in this little room where I was progressively getting more clear, but also more raw and vulnerable, which is you know, very workable because you have the strength of attention. You have the equanimity and balance of mind to then to meet even, the, even the, the seemingly most raw and vulnerable elements of your own uh, nature and your own conditioning. So I'm in this room with the water flowing down and I I realized over the the first part of the retreat, unfortunately you've mostly experienced the first part of the retreat on on this retreat and there is a phenomenon that gets very strong at the beginning called yogi mind. Yogi mind is is a a very strong reactivity to to stimuli and, uh, and a tendency because we don't actually know how to accommodate it, don't have the balance of mind, the the spaciousness of mind at first to deal. Everything hits against our, our likes and our dislikes and our mind, the pressure of liking and dislikes just uh, 
I, I use the word often spawns. It just, it awakens this uh, torrent of reactivity and thoughts. And I remember going into the office here. In fact, the, the office used to be where the staff dining room is. And I said, I can't stay in that room. And I would, you know, a kind of craziness. And, and they say, you know, too bad. <laughs> you know, of course, it, they did it with kind-hearted, kind-heartedly, but... So I realized at the beginning that I, I had no capacity to deal with, um, not very good capacity to deal with the conditions that were presenting, presenting themselves. But as I went along, I settled in. And to such a point where I spent literally weeks doing all of my practice in this little room. And doing my sitting in there and doing my walking in there. And just moment by moment, hours and hours every day, not unlike what we've been doing here. And my mind got very quiet and I got very open. And I had in the room a little foam mattress and I had a bunch of pillows. And then, because the room was so small, it had no closet. I had hanging on the end of the room a rack with all of my clothes. This is where the clothes come in. And in my view, I had way too many clothes. I had I saw myself then as a, I described the other night as a as a greed type, and there were those clothes, and when the going got tough, I looked up at those clothes and with a little bit of self judgment, but also a tendency to see the the clothes I liked on that rack, and then not only did I see the clothes that I liked, and it brought a kind of soothing to my to my um, meditation. It reminded me of home, and then my mind would spin off a little bit. Did any of you notice your mind spin out a little bit about little things like your shoes or your pants or your clothes or your your skin or something? But I, I started spinning out, and where my mind would go is, oh, maybe I should buy that in a different color. And I imagine myself going home and wearing the different things. And, and, and I, I would hear my mind doing that because when you're quiet, you just, there's nothing hidden. It's all, it's, it's all right in plain view. There was a little bit of a reaction of aversion toward this fact that my mind just was into, into spinning out about that. And compounded by a little judgment that I had too much stuff. And of course, I was in this little room. But there came a point in the practice where I was so quiet and things had opened up so much that I, was, uh, I felt absolutely not only clear, but I felt as though I was one year old. And here I was in this little room and everything I saw through my eyes, everything I heard, everything I smelled, everything I felt in my body, and everything I thought, anytime I would look out the window, everything felt scary and painful to me. And this was, you could say classically, I was having insight into into the... pain of conditions, what's called sankara dukkha, just the, the relentlessness of the, imp, the impingement of our senses of having to just deal with life. And sometimes we're, not, we're moving so fast that we don't know how hard it is actually to, to be a person, that it's not, it's not always so pretty, it's not always so easy. 
as we've been talking about a lot on the retreat. So as I looked around and I felt everything so painful and hard to bear and felt so young and innocent, so uh, just blown by the winds of the circumstance I was in, it just seems, it may seem from a gross perspective, you know, I'm lucky, I'm on a meditation retreat, I'm in a nice room, I'm getting well fed, but from the inside I felt literally like an infant that needed to be held. And there was no one there to hold me. So I looked at my extra pillows lying, you know, sitting on the, on the foam pad where I was also had my Zafu and I rolled off of my Zafu onto the mattress, wrapped myself in pillows and I hugged myself. And I hugged myself. And then I started to cry and I cried and I cried and I just, and that my, I just had to discharge that, the intensity of that experience. And I, I, and something happened in my heart and it just kind of cracked open. So this is a, a promise of practice. And of course, it wouldn't, won't necessarily look like my practice, but there is, a, there is a cracking, there is a widening of our heart, a widening of our mind, a widening of our view that, it, that really is inevitable if you keep opening to life. Well, at that point where I was crying and so vulnerable, I looked over at my clothes hanging on the rack that I had up to this point been a little bit critical about. And I looked at it and I said, oh, I have all this stuff as a way of holding myself. And once I, that, once I had that thought, that insight, my heart just cracked and a wave of self-compassion came over me. And I realized that all of the many things that I'd done in my life to, to make myself feel better, to, and at, there were certain points before that where I, I didn't know how to tolerate the, the energy that I was feeling. I used to run up and down Pleasant Street here in the middle of the night, two in the morning, run, run up and down the street. And I would say, oh, I'm just making it easy on myself. I'm just going outside and running. You can't sit with yourself. So I had this little inner critic that, would just eat at me and I, and I would notice the ways that I would take the easy way and, and uh, just pull back a little bit from practice. But once my heart cracked and that wave of self-compassion came over me, it, it became really clear that almost everything I do and consequently I was able to see that everything almost everyone does and many of the things that actually cause lots of distress in this life, lots of suffering, are ways that we are trying to hold ourselves. Ways we are trying to deal with the fact that we, we are living in a sea of, of conditions that are, in a sense, uh, as we have been saying, as Leela spoke about last night, not in control, anatta is the word, it's often described as selfless. But it, selfless means in a, in a, a very, um, some way, obvious way, is that we do not exist ourselves completely alone apart from everything in our life. That we are, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, we 
inter-are. We are living in a, a sea of interbeing. He says, you are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious that we inter-are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. Now the fact is I'm talking about the clothes. Those clothes do not exist apart from you. You are, you are part of that story. Me being here is part of that, those, that little moment that I thought was, was in a little vacuum, a little, the world of me in that little room. But it turns out, and if we were to look more deeply at our own life experience, every little thing that happens is connected to something, either something to come or something that came before. As I met with, uh, this is a little digression, but as I met with you today, as, uh, as often is the case for me on retreats, is I, I tend to just um, be in awe and I kind of fall in love with each person and I'm, I'm just struck by your, um, your unique expression of life, your and just... And, I, and not only, I know that I'm not only meeting you, but I meet, I'm meeting your parents, your grandparents. I'm meeting your cultural heritage. I'm meeting your religious heritage, your political heritage. I'm meeting, I'm meeting earth. I'm meeting air. I'm meeting fire. I'm me- meeting water. I'm meeting earth. And I, I realize that each one of us is this kind of perfect expression of life. And, uh, and, not, and that none of us really, at the same time, that we are so uniquely individual, we don't exist apart from everything that brought us to be. It's the, it always reminds me and why it's so easy to see when I hear your stories and hear your patterns that you are not to blame for the way you live your life. You may be responsible as an individual to, to work with the conditions that present themselves, but how you are the result, is the result of what all of the myriad, beginningless causes and conditions that brought you to be. As my friend Wes, I, I think Leela quoted Wes last night, but I'll quote him again, he, he His very simple line is, you are not your fault. (laughs) This is somewhat why, why the teachings are, and the practice is a, a process of helping us come out of a very narrow, the very narrow gravitational field of our own individuality, our own self-preoccupations, our own little inner world, to a wider, a wider um, circle of understanding and connection and affection. 
As uh, the poet David Budbill says in his uh, poem, Bugs in a Bowl, he says, Han Shan, the great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right, every day climbing up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down, sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around, see your fellow bugs, walk around, say, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. So that opening of self-compassion also opened, opened up for me in a small measure and who knows whether, you know, I still feel like my compassion is, a, you know, is the size of a, a pea compared to what is possible. But it did open that sense, that, that wider sense of this, um, this being connected to the life and understanding that, that humanity that we share, that we all in some ways are acting and living and even our self-preoccupation, almost everything we do that causes us to stress is an attempt to find relief. It's an attempt to find connection. You know that Hafez poem where he says, isn't it true that uh, everyone you see, you say to them, under your breath of course, you say to them, love me, love me. Of course you don't say this out loud, otherwise somebody would call the cops. Uh, but isn't it true this longing for us to connect he says, why not become the one with the full moon in your eyes, offering to everyone what they're so longing to hear? But until we actually paradoxically open to our own condition, which is what we've been doing here this, this weekend, uh, we, it's very easy to, to in our running uh, from ourselves, it's very easy to feel that we are um, very alone, as I felt, you know, as in that kind of regressed state, very alone and apart from the, from the flow of life. And as you can just heard from the, if you just reflect on how deeply interconnected we are, we're just part of a river of experience. I mean, we're not even part of a river of experience. We are the river of experience. There's just nothing in us that is not just moving with and and part of the, the flow of life. And we find that when we come to, paradoxically, to this single point. To when we come back to the immediate felt sense of ourselves. And this is distinguishes, this is distinguished from, uh, from living maniacally in the ideas about ourselves. Just this kind of mania to construct uh, with our thoughts this the world of me, as we've all been talking about in our own ways. When we come out of that tangle of, of me and just stop a little bit, 
after your last thought of yourself and before the next one, there's a, there's a natural connection that we feel with, I think you can feel with life, right? Right where it's touching you. I have all these poems running through my mind right now. The poem from Rumi where he says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking, me thinking, live in silence. Flow down and down in ever widening rings of being. So when we are quiet, when we come to that single point, just here feeling our body, not looking back, not looking ahead. Where is the dividing line between us if we don't experience ourselves through our memory? This becomes clear that we, we enter our. We're, we're sharing this, this, what's sometimes called suchness, just the isness of life. The Buddha was called Tathagata, one who knows suchness. One whose mind is not caught in the divided um, view of oneself. But again, paradoxically, how do we come to that single point? By studying ourselves. You know the line from Dogen, Zen Master Dogen, to study the Buddha Dharma is to study the self, what we call ourselves, the mind-body. But to study the self is to see through it. To see through it is to be then awakened by all things, where everything, you recognize everything as your own, as your own self, you could say. I think indigenous communities have this, this sense of non-separateness, just embedded into their, into their culture. We are an idea, excessively idealistic, individualistic culture. And so our, our trajectory tends to be about, our, our thoughts tend to be a little less about our connection to the world around us it, it, it tends instead to be, as I spoke about the other night, in our obsession with, with conventional happiness, we tend to be in that kind of uh, tunnel um, of, move, of being very small, feeling very small, apart from the flow of life, and then constructing in our mind the idea that we are somebody But not just somebody, somebody who's come from the past, who's passing through the present, on my way to the future, and my future is, as I mentioned the other night, I'm sitting in the same spot, I'm almost in the same tunnel as I was. Future is the point where I will find my connection, my relief, and it and it manifests in so many ways in our daily life. It's at the end of the weekend, I mean the end of the, we- the work week, the end of the project, the consummation of a relationship, or the end of a relationship, whatever it is that where we set our golden dreams, we can very easily live in this little reality where I've come from the past, 
moving through the present on my way to the future. And that is a story, that is a narrative, that one that gets constructed in our mind is somebody who does not really exist. It's an imaginary you that lives in time. The real you, the essential you that's here in this room tonight, on your direct experience, is, um, is much more rich and textured, less in this little narrow tunnel, much more like that sky-like nature of the mind we talked about earlier today, connected to everything, everything included. Just experiment for a moment. What, you, what happens after your last thought quiets for a moment and before the next one comes. What is your, what is your experience? What happens? Anybody willing to say out loud in the Dharma hall? What happens? What do you experience after the last thought stops about yourself and before the next one comes? Connection. 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 Okay. Anything else? Quietness. Quietness. Peace. Peace. Pain. Pain. Physical. Well, difficult. Physical aches. Thank you. But it sounds very simple, doesn't it? Very different than the view of ourself of what we are that plays in our mind. Again, another poem floating through or another phrase from James J. Audubon. Where he said, if there's a difference between the bird, which is you, as you are right here, there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says. Field guide book is the little narrative that flows through our mind. If there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. (laughs) So why do we stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Because Fear. fear... But really it's, um, yeah, fear and then out of love for ourselves. Yes, fear. Thank you. Conditioning. Conditioning. Yeah. It's amazing if you stay with your practice long enough, you'll see how it happens moment by moment, or maybe you already have. We have, as we sit here and as we walk, As I mentioned the other night, we have six experiences repeating themselves over and over. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. And each of those little experiences that we have over and over produce a little, um, they come based on our conditioning, based on on our perception, our conditioning. They they have a, a valence of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the pleasant, we tend to have, feel a charge of liking. The unpleasant, a charge of disliking. And if we're, if we're noticing that, oh, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, no problem at all. We're just here with the simplicity of life. But when we start to not like something, 
there's a not liking or there's a liking, it creates a little internal pressure. And that t- little internal pressure, then the release of it comes in the form of, I want it, I need it, I've got to have it. I want to either continue having more of what I don't, what I don't, what I have, and I want to get rid of what I, or I want to get rid of what I have. I want what I don't have, or I don't want what I do have. And our mind then starts going into a little world of, of strategizing, you know. And for many people during a sitting, it's, it's the, uh, that bell's got to ring. The bell is the secret to my happiness. And our mind is in that kind of narrow pursuit, hanging in, in suspended well-being, waiting for the bell to ring, and the bell rings, and we go, oh. <laughs> and there's just this ah. And who disappeared in that ah was the me that needed to have the bell ring in order to be happy. The little tunnel view that I'm somebody who's come from the past, I'm, I'm, the present is, I'm experiencing as a huge obstacle and I will be happy when that bell rings in the future. And we hear that bell and there's that cessation and then we think, oh, it was the bell that gave me the relief. When really what gave the relief is the letting go of that Um, that identity of being somebody that needs something to happen, somebody who has a problem that needs to be solved. That sense, what the Buddha called um, that sense of becoming, of toppling forward, the Buddha called that bhava, this, this movement, this constant going, And in this constant go- this going in the mind, the truth is we haven't gone anywhere. We've always been and always are exactly where we are. This is our mind moving. So these innocent little experiences of pleasant and unpleasant, they don't seem like much, but they are the building blocks. They are the causes, the under, underlying cause of a... Of a a momentum of our life to either get away from what we don't like or to have more of what we do like. And this is where we fall so easily and innocently into the case of mistaken identity. Living in that imagined version of ourselves and to the degree that any of us is living in that world of the imagined view of ourselves that that needs time to become happy, needs time to get what I want. We are living in a, in a world of dukkha, a world of, of misery in a way. As one teacher put it, all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth that name is the is the natural happiness of being awake, being conscious. But innocently, we, we, run from, we run from silence, run from ourselves.
as uh, Rumi said, inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to that prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with thick cloud. Slide out the side. Die. And be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. So it would be, if it was just this personality view, Sakaya Ditti, that's what the Buddha called, this imaginary version of ourself, that sense of ourself that exists apart from the whole of life, that somehow that we're either outside the river or we're in the river, but we're not, we, the, the loss of understanding that we literally are the river of life, that we have never been apart from, the, from everything that has touched everything. There's not one thing that could have, if we would not be here if one thing in the whole world would have been different than the way it is. We are part of a, a sea of circumstances. But it's not just heading for our next pleasurable experience. When that inner narrative, when we live in that little inner narrative, the, the world of me that I imagine in my mind, This is a world of, because it's tethered to thoughts, this identity view, this view of ourself, because it's tethered to the thoughts, it's very, very insecure. It's very shaky. It's very fearful. This personality view is, is, is like a house of cards. It, does, it has no substantiality to it. It's a story. It doesn't really exist, the one who you imagine. Now, when I say that, you may go, oh, does that mean I don't exist? Anybody have that thought? Of course you exist. You are here in full living color, a perfect manifestation of life, a miraculous, mysterious, unexplainable manifestation of, of life. Uniquely individual, not like any one person. Like every tree in the forest is different, just like you. So you are here in full detail, full living color. And you are in your suchness absolutely beautiful. Now the story of yourself that plays in your mind, not so beautiful. It's often a story of lack. And if it isn't lacking the pleasure that I'm seeking or the person I'm seeking or whatever, it's often a feeling of lack of worthiness, of sufficiency. And not only is that born of the insecurity of of having it bound up in thoughts, but it's bound up in our body, our strong identity with our bodies, with this physical form. 
which is aging. It often doesn't look the way that the, that the movie stars look. It doesn't look the way that the, it doesn't stay healthy. It doesn't stay young. It dies and the time of our death, completely uncertain. We've talked about that a lot on the retreat. And so our identity hooked to our bodies also creates a feeling of, of tremendous insecurity. And then on top of that, on top of that, because that sense of identity is insecure because of our, our of where we're, we're always aiming for a future that never arrives and because because the future is, it holds uncertainty, we're continually in a state of, of um, anxiety. Well, what if it doesn't make me happy? And then to our body that's aging. And then we look around at our fellow bugs. And then the story continues with, wow. Now, I was telling Leela today that I, was, um, that I have such a marvelous time being with her, but I'm a little jealous of the way she uses language. <laughs> but this is, this is personality view. We start the comparing mind. Everybody does it. Now, of course, being able to be mindful of the comparing mind and be able to share it with a friend, it's, it loses its power. It's just comparing mind comparing. And she, she shared her comparing mind with me and you know we go back and forth and it's all just it's, it's Leela, it's play. It's divine play in a way. But we're not often so easy about it in our minds. With that thought of somebody's either above or below or equal to, our mind is start often in a state of anxiety, measuring, measuring, measuring. Am I good enough? Am I better? Am I good, better, best? And that world that is only happening in our imagination, I am not comparable. I am, I am, as I'm saying about you, a, a unique expression of life. But the mind starts going, I'm, I'm not this or I'm not that. And it goes to huge extremes. And I thought maybe I would talk a little bit about the comparing mind. So I, I brought along something I think I've read in past retreats here at, at IMS. But it's, it was, to me, the, the quintessential crazy comparing mind. This was uh, from a, this went around the internet and it said in June, and this was from the year 2002. In June, after the British musical group, The Planets, introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album, representatives of this estate of the composer John Cage, who once wrote four hours, 33 minutes, which included 273 seconds of silence, threatened to sue the group for ripping Cage off. (laughs) But failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 273 seconds it thought it it had, uh, had been pilfered, said Mike Batt of the Planets. Mine is a much better silent piece. 
I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> or we compare to impossible ideals. Our mind, and of course, everybody wants to look like the Buddha statue and <laughs> we're bur- our knees are burning. We're being pushed forward by the aches in our shoulders and there's that perfect Buddha. And how, how can you not feel defeated in the face of that, that made-up comparison? And then other ideals like, like this one, if it's this kind of ideal of, of being so together in your spiritual life. If you can start the day without caffeine or stimulants, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you and when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, you can relax without alcohol. If you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all these things, then you're probably the family dog. So we can laugh only when we can shine a light on, our, on these tendencies of mind, when we can make a shift from living out of this case of mistaken identity to noticing, oh, that's the comparing mind comparing. And this is why we begin that process of teasing out the, the thought forms that play through our mind. And the more we're able to st- notice the what we often call the top 10 tunes and what for most people the top tunes are planning, judging, comparing, analyzing, interpreting, rehearsing, reminiscing, any others? Regretting. And once we can make make, uh, that shift from being literally carried along by that, that even the regretting is describing a virtual version of ourselves. But when we see it in our mind, we see that regretting is regretting. Planning is planning. These are, these are empty little bubbles. They arise according to conditions from our, you know, something our parents said. You have that little judging mind. You hear your mother's voice or your father's voice or your, your priest's voice or your teacher's voice or your partner's or somebody that said something that caused harm and it reverberates. But it does not accurately, it could never, ever capture your, um, your natural essence, your beingness, your, your primordial wakefulness. This is why, why Rumi, I think, sa- says it so beautifully in his poem called Tending Two Shops. He says, don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. The only real rest comes when you're alone with, you could, you could interchange any word, just presence, awareness. 
says, live in the nowhere where you came from. Even though you have an address here. I want to be- slow down a little bit. When, I, when he says you have an address here, you have a personal story. You have a, your individuality comes with a personal story. And the personal story has all within it where you fit in the family of things. You know, what your tribe is, what your gender is, what your orientations are in so many different ways. And we want to see the beauty of that unique expression that is even our story. But we want to expand beyond that little story. Not live inside of that and so that we miss the the peace and happiness that is really available to us. So I'll back up a little bit. He says, live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere. And you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops and you keep running back and forth. Try to close the one or at least change your relationship to the one that's a fearful trap. Getting always smaller, checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore, where you are the free swimming fish. So where is the nowhere where you came from? Here. Everywhere. Is there a here apart from everywhere? There was a wonderful Tibetan teacher named... Um, uh, uh, and I've, I've forgotten his name. But he said... You notice, notice after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises. Is there not in that moment a vivid clarity? Without anything in particular to see, everything just, just pure knowing or seeing. He says, Ho, oh, this is awareness. Some would say this is your natural state. This is the nowhere where you came from. But he says, isn't it true also that a thought suddenly arises? Thoughts definitely pop up, don't they? He says, if that thought is noticed, it shows itself as just an expression of that same Awareness, inseparable, it's just thought, just a wave of the mind, not separate. But if that thought goes unnoticed, that thought, I am somebody, goes unnoticed, it spreads out into, it creates a little chain, it spreads out into what he calls 
ordinary thinking, otherwise known as the chain of delusion. So it's in those simple moments of a thought unrecognized arising that we enter into that virtual world of ourselves. So that profound shift from living in those thoughts to be able to, at least more frequently, live in the nowhere where we came from and be able to notice, oh, there's the thinking mind thinking, there's the planning mind planning, there's the judging mind judging. Seeing the nature, as Alex was saying, of all of the thought forms, all of the images, they appear inseparable from awareness and they vanish. They are changing. They are not me. They are not mine. There's no me or mine in a thought. It's a thought is just a thought. And as we see that, then thoughts, uh, we recognize them as, as just part of the sense experiences, just like a thought is to our door of perception called mind, as a sound is to the ear, as a smell is to the nose, as a taste is to the tongue. But we've practiced a long time incarnating in our thoughts, believing that a thought of ourself is ourself. But a thought of ourself is not ourself. It's just a thought. So whatever moments you were able in the course of this retreat to see thinking for for what it is, just noticing how unbidden the thoughts come. You know, when Leela was talking about the number of thoughts, I heard that it was 65,000 thoughts a day and that 90% are repeats from the day before. Now, do you think if there was a thinker if they were yours, if they're, if they're me, if they're mine, you think that you would just repeat the same 60,000 thoughts every day? It's so obvious that there, this is just, um, it's just firing of synapses. It's miraculous. And they are, uh, but they're also, as, as I think both everybody said, they're, they can be incredibly useful and wonderful and beautiful and creative. And, and we, hopefully in the course of our practice, we see which ones are useful. Oh, that Alex was talking about. Which ones are useful? Which ones to follow? Which ones are, are the voice of wisdom? And which ones are delusion? To me, this is reason enough to, to care to guard our senses, to stay current with ourselves, to stay here, to make it our life's devotion to, not to stay here at IMS, <laughs> but, to, but to stay awake. Just while I'm on the topic of awake, hoping I can find this. My favorite story about waking up is uh, from Anthony DeMello, where he said, last year on Spanish television, I heard a story about this gentleman who knocked, knocks on his son's door. Jaime, he says, wake up. Jaime answers, I don't want to get up, Papa. The father shouts, get up. You have to go to school. 
Jaime says, I don't want to go to school. Why not, asks the father. Three reasons, says Jaime. First, because it's so dull. Second, the kids tease me. And third, I hate school. And the father says, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why you must go to school. First, because it is your duty. Second, because you are 45 years old. (laughs) And third, because you are the headmaster. (laughs) Wake up, wake up. So I think I want to punctuate every, everything I've said up to this point by, uh, by talking about my daughter, Molly, who is 11 and a half years old. And several people have reminded me they've heard some talks that I gave about her. And most, I gave a lot of talks about her when she was... Uh, I started giving talks about her when she was about four years old because I, I was... I was amazed by what I was seeing unfolding in her consciousness. And I, it's one of the, for me, one of the, um, the great um, privileges to actually watch her consciousness unfold. But from the day she was born, as, as is true of all of you, she had her unique expression of life. You know, she was, she was forged by all of life from all time. She came into being, with, you know, from from circumstances completely beyond her control. <laughs> Wasn't her fault. <laughs> and she, she came out as, as just a, the perfect expression, what I have always called it, I called it molliness. You know, she's got molliness, just as you have your version of molliness. And I would just marvel at how uh, she was not like any person I'd ever met. And uh, she was unique and she had lots of little curly brown hair and these big blueberry eyes and um, just a sweet little girl and and that was great there was molliness and I wouldn't want her to be any different I'd want her to just completely appreciate her molliness but then I noticed she went to nursery school and then she went to kindergarten and she had these little brown ringlets. And she saw so many of the other girls had blonde, straight blonde hair or straight brown hair. And so she came home and she started pulling at her hair, standing in front of the mirror trying to straighten her hair. And I could see already the comparing mind was beginning, the mirroring that, 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 and the, the process that says, I, I want to be... I'm, I should be like other people. I, I want to be like other people. And if she could notice that, that would be that would be great. But if it goes unnoticed, that can those little reactions can harden into an addictive pattern of viewing yourself that you should be just in general different than the way you are. And then the chronic sense of insufficiency, lack, whatever it is that that plays through your mind, that, that gives you that common refrain that says there's something that's not quite right here. Something's not quite right with me. Any of you ever have that? 
I'll back up again using a word that this wonderful teacher named Douglas Harding used, on present evidence, here, in the nowhere where you came from, where is the evidence that there's something wrong with you? If you don't, cult, if you don't consult that imaginary version of yourself. What happens to you your dukkha, your suffering. Now you may have intense heartache. You may have something very unpleasant occurring. But the mental suffering when you're not setting yourself apart it's hard to find. But it is inevitable that human beings, as my daughter Molly, we're all socialized. We all move from just being that undifferentiated, unique, perfect expression of life to a, to a psychologic, to having a psychological perspective about ourselves. And that psychological perspective is formed by the way that we're spoken to, by all those different cultural influences. And we, and it's very. Um, very easy to have our view about ourselves limited to that little, that, that story, that view of self, that called self-view, sakaya ditti. And as a view, it is, it's not very solid, it's not very secure. And it was this view of self that that the Buddha, when he sat under the Bodhi tree, this is what he saw through. You know, as he sat and he saw the flow of experience. He saw that all these thoughts about himself, all the visiting of the temptation and the, and the, the desires and the everything, he saw that this is just thinking mind thinking, a view of self. And when, he, when his mind opened beyond that limited view of that limited psychological view about ourselves. And in that flash of insight, it opened and he, he said, the first thing he uttered was, oh, I've been running. That, that psychological version has kept me running. He said, through many births, again and again, I've been born into this, this cycle of trying to get to where I need to go. He said, through many births and the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of that house. He saw there was nothing behind it. He said, oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken. Your ridge pole destroyed. That's the ignorance and the defilements are cleared. Rafters are broken. Ridge pole destroyed. Mind gone to the unconditioned. To cravings, cessation. To that craving that keeps us in that state of unslakable thirst. The way that comes to an end is any moment that we wake up to where we are. That's why these little moments of mindfulness are not wasted. Because every single time we, there is a knowing of an experience in its simplicity, we step off the whole wheel of suffering. It's just things as they have come to be, just things as they are.
If I can find it in this pile, I'd like to just uh, end with the, in honor of having thoughts included in the instructions today. I'd like to end with the words of of Ajahn Chah. So notice your mind <laughs> looking forward impatience questioner asks the venerable Ajahn Chah I still have very many thoughts my mind wanders a lot even though I'm trying to be mindful don't worry about this Try to keep your mind in the present. Whatever there is that arises in in your mind, just notice it. Let it be. Let it go. Don't wish to be rid of thoughts. Then the mind will reach its natural state. No discriminating between good and bad, hot and cold, fast and slow. No me and no you. No self at all. Just what there is. When you walk, there's no need to do anything special. Simply walk and see what there is. No need to cling to isolation or seclusion. Wherever you are, know yourself by being natural and noticing. If doubts arise, notice them come and go. It's very simple. Hold on to nothing. It is as though you're walking down a road. Periodically, you will run into obstacles. When you meet defilements, just see them and overcome them by letting them be, letting them go. Don't think about the obstacles you've passed already. Don't worry about those you've not yet seen. Stick to the present. Don't be concerned about the length of of the road or about a destination. Everything is changing. Whatever you pass, do not cling to it. Eventually, the mind will reach its natural balance where practice is automatic. All things will come and go of themselves. Now, this is not relevant to a retreat, so, but I'll read it anyway. Sitting for hours on end is not necessary. <laughs> Some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I've seen chickens sitting on their nests for days on end. <laughs> Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you awaken in the morning. It should continue until you fall asleep. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. What is important is that you keep watchful, whether you are working, sitting, or going to the bathroom. Each person has his or her own natural pace. Some of you will die at age 50, some at age 65, some at age 90. So too, your practice will not all be identical. Don't think or worry about this. 
Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still, like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see clearly the nature of all things in this world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of a Buddha. So let's just stay still. You don't have to change your posture. Just be still, be mindful. It's a state of being. A state of utter receptivity. May all beings find happiness right where we are, right where life touches us. So enjoy your version of molliness as you walk around and let yourself be. And we have about... uh, 35 minutes for walking. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.